Hi, I'm Frances Katzen and welcome to my podcast, The World of Real Estate. In this series, we will explore the world's largest asset class and how it plays out on a global scale. So I'd like to introduce our guest today, Mr. Liam Bailey, the partner of Knight Frank and global head of research of Knight Frank. Boy, I'm so excited to be interviewing you today. Uh, great to be with you and uh, thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. Pleasure. Um, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself, Knight Frank, and what you do for them? Yeah, so I am the head of the, the research teams here at Knight Frank. So I'm based in London. We've got a team of about 30 people uh, doing research into residential and commercial property um, here in London, uh, the UK and around the world. We work very closely with your team uh, at Douglas Elliman in uh, New York, uh, working with uh, Jonathan Miller uh, and also uh, Andrew Watchfogel and his team as well. Um, so we're just trying to understand key trends in uh, residential development sales uh, and also just really trying to sort of see where, where we think things will be going over the next few years. Would you say Knight, Frank and Douglas Elliman? I mean, some people get confused. Are Knight, Frank and Douglas Elliman the same company or just alliances? It's, it's an alliance between two independent companies. So, you know, Douglas Elliman, uh, you know, long established um, independent uh, company uh, and, and Knight, Frank is, a, is an independent partnership based out of London. So the relationship we have is, uh, is, is, is a, um, an, an arrangement or agreement between two independent firms. How does the partnership between Knight Frank and Douglas Elliman help with selling properties in New York to citizens that are currently living abroad or in other countries? Yeah, I think we've got a number of um, you know offices around the world, and obviously we've got um, buyers who will then express an interest in buying property in, in New York, which is great. But increasingly, we've got a number of what we call ambassadors um, based out of the London office who mm -hmm. travel regularly into uh, other markets and. I think because those individuals, uh, and there's probably sort of 20 of them in total, because they work with your teams, they, they, they travel regularly to the U.S., um, they've got an understanding of the real estate market in um, the U.S., and they're able to you know, kind of sell the opportunity and the, and, and, and the, um, um, the properties that you've got you know, available and actually sort of transmit mm. that and translate it for different markets. So I think that, that's become a really kind of compelling um, sell for us. It's very different to watch a referral go from New York to Russia or Paris than it is from home to home within New York City. It has a very different cultural transfer within it. Can you tell us a little more on how the process of working with two brokerages that have an alliance looks? Does this simplify the process or make it more confusing? Uh, I, think it, I think it simplifies the process. I mean, ultimately, we've got clients who... You know, would like to like to understand what they can do in America, and and and, and vice versa. You know, your, yeah. your brokers have got clients who are you know buying in Miami, but they're actually also thinking of buying into Europe or whatever. And I think it's got to make things simpler if our key bro our key agents and your key brokers begin to know each other. And in, in one Correct. one of the most important things we do is our global residential um, conference in London in uh, April each year. Mm -hmm. We also have a, a conference in, uh, in Asia, um, um, we, we've just been to actually, and a number of your, um, you know, your key brokers and your, and your key teams will, will, will come to those events. In fact, mm -hmm. actually the London events become quite a big 
um, uh, you know, a big event now for, uh, for Douglas Elliman Brokers. And actually, uh, recently, Maria Morris, who runs our Dubai office, she's had a um, she That's had an right. event with mm-hmm. you know key uh, Douglas Elliman Brokers going over to Dubai. So I think those, those kind of opportunities they really help cement the relationship and help to cross sell knowledge and, and experience and just allow all of us really, whether it's you know U.S. brokers or or, 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 or the night front brokers, to become much more confident in selling uh, our, our global offer. I think that's actually the most important component, which is how do you speak to these markets and the knowledge behind these sectors are important. The New York City real estate market is particularly sensitive to economic conditions beyond our borders. What is your take on the global economy right now? Um, well, we noted actually in the wealth report this year that the global economy was slowing. But I mean, there's a bit of context because the last three years have been incredibly strong. So we've had, you know, sort of three years of very, very strong growth globally. The U.S. has been, you know, the kind of leading part of that story. And there, there has been a sort of sign of a slowdown from that high point now for sort of 12 months. And, uh, you know, whilst you know, no one is really, well, few economists are expecting a global recession, Correct. Um, the, 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 the global economy will slow, slow from mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And that, that obviously begins to sort of suggest different strategies to our, to our investors and our clients about actually how they want to position themselves in a, in a slower growth environment. But we, it was very interesting. I visited you uh, this summer uh, to hear the wealth report spoken in the Hamptons. And there was a very interesting uh, statistic that you brought to light about the art market. Can you speak a little bit about the highest trade we saw for that? I, it wasn't Coons. What was it? I can't remember now. But you, you put it out there and I was floored. I think it was $91 million. Yeah, no, it was actually it, well remembered. It was it was a Jeff Koons sculpture, uh, a, a, rabbit? A, a, a rabbit, a rabbit sculpture. <laughs> um, but the, the reason I mentioned it was because we we've been tracking art and other collectibles in the wealth Report for a number of years, right. really to help understand actually what you know what are our clients thinking about and and how do they view alternative investments to property at the moment and, and where they see property and real estate within their portfolio, and I think really. One of the biggest stories, we, or biggest narratives we saw was this, this kind of shift from uh, financial assets and intangible assets over the last decade towards um, tangibles like property, like art, fine wine, classic cars, because investors were, were slightly nervous of, of, of where they, um, how they saw their portfolios perform in, mm-hmm. the, in, the, you know, in the crisis. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, there's been a significant shift in, in confidence for investors looking to trust the performance of tangible assets um, and you know, building building collections that they can enjoy, but also that they, they, they can profit from. Do you find that the markets have rebounded, but the real estate has not? Um, I think the real estate market has... Well, it's funny. I, I think the real estate market globally has, has slowed in the last year or so. I mean, we've seen the same thing in, you know, in, in New York, as you see in London and, and many of our other markets. Some of it is down to taxation. So, you know, yeah. you've obviously had tax changes in the last 12 months in New York, and we've seen that in many other markets. Brexit. But I think also there's just this issue that, you know, we've come off, you know, 10 years of very strong growth in most property markets uh, around the world. And there is, a, you know, even though interest rates are low and going lower, there is there's little headroom at the moment for sort of for, for purchases to keep bidding prices higher. Mm. You know, affordability is... It's still an issue, even if even if you're you know buying it in in the prime market. 
Well, I don't think we're um, seeing a lot of wage growth. I think that's part of the issue too. Taxation yeah, and absolutely. wage growth, you know? Yeah, and I think that, that that's the, I mean, fundamentally, uh, taking out of the equation the kind of discretionary purchases by very wealthy people, you know, most markets like New York or London, they're driven by workers and they're driven exactly. by you know, what those workers are earning and job creation and those, those, those are the basics. That's exactly. And whilst most of those, mm-hmm. you know, most of those things are relatively positive still, um, you know, even in that environment, if you've had you know, a doubling of, of values in, in 10 years, uh, it isn't sustainable to think that's going to continue at that rate in the future. Yeah, it's also very interesting here in New York as we see the entry market recede because they have the least to spend and the most to lose. So it's a very interesting adjustment. So going back to the point, which is the art market seemed to sustain against a real estate market that adjusted. It was very strange to me because usually that's a, an extension of real estate excess, you know. As a, well, it's, mm. it's funny because actually the whilst the, the there's been some big headline sales and you know the Jeff Coon sale and, and, and other other sort of um, sales that we that we noted, um, there was um, I, I think there um, the issue there is that behind the scenes actually in the kind of the, in the in the in the wider art market and other collectible markets actually the, the kind of the the run of the mill the average lots haven't been achieving such strong prices. So mm-hmm. actually, there's been a flight to quality um, and more um, you know, more investment has been going on in, in the very expensive end of the, pro- uh, of, of the collectibles market. But I don't think it's been reflected across the board. Got it. Got it. Um, the New York real estate market has had and seen a softening, as we've just spoken about. Which cities are flourishing and why? In the U.S., all over, global. I think... Um, Are you finding anywhere that's flourishing now that regimes or governments or taxation has shifted in those areas? I mean, or are we really not well, seeing I, it? I, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, an interesting, you know, group of markets really is in continental Europe. So, you know, whilst the US and the UK and Asian markets were sort of booming in sort of 2010, 2011, European markets were still struggling because they'd had the eurozone crisis as well as um, mm-hmm. the the financial crisis sure so they, they 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 began their recovery much later than other markets and actually places like paris or berlin and even madrid uh, and other other european centers have, have been performing quite strongly for a couple of years and that seems to be continuing so we'd expect to see double digit growth in some of those markets uh, over the next 12 months um, wow. but i think e- e- even in you know yes the U.S. markets are have uh, come off from where they yes, were. Sure I have. think you've, you've still got some really strong, you know, sort of narratives and backstories behind your markets. <laughs> so, things like Austin or yeah, um, Texas, you mm-hmm. know, um, uh, Denver and other other sort of key mm. um, knowledge hubs or expanding knowledge hubs. There's a really positive story about those. In speaking with the manager who was heading up the new Texas office here in America, he said the pricing and boom is off the hook in Texas. He has never seen anything like it. The growth has taken off. What are the biggest checkpoints today's investors are looking for when purchasing a non-primary residence, in your opinion, Liam? Um, I think... If you're buying, you know, let's say you're buying an investment um, property, um, or even if it's property used, but you, you're going to want to see some growth from it. I think the most important thing really is, uh, I mean, number one, um, it, it comes around to um, 
uh, your uh, attitude to risk. So in that there are growth markets, other opportunity markets, which will be you know, less palatable because they're, sort of, they're, they're unknown to you and, you and you're not aware of the um, uh, of um, the, the local tax and, 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 and legal um, situation. Um, but I think for me, the, the critical issue really comes down to the fundamentals of you know, economic growth, employment growth, mm-hmm. uh, how resilient is the local economy. So mm-hmm. if, you're, if, you're, if you look at somewhere like London, where there's been so much bad news now for the past five years because of Brexit and mm-hmm. tax changes, but actually the London economy has performed really strongly. So mm-hmm. actually, since the, even since the Brexit referendum in 2016, there's been 300,000 new jobs created in, in London. It's become the undoubted tech center as well as financial capital of, of Europe. And you know, that, that dynamism in the local economy is, is, is the issue really that, that propels uh, investors to think actually this is a location which will see wage growth uh, and strong demand from occupiers. I think everything really, from that perspective, comes down to the strength of the local economy and the desirability of, uh, of, of, a, of, a, of a location um, for uh, employers and employees. I did not know that London was the tech centre for Europe. I'm learning. I'm learning. Oh, yeah, teaching me. without a doubt. I mean, to be <laughs> fair, I mean, you know, Berlin, Stockholm, Paris, I mean, they're, they're all important locations, but London is, is you know, is several times bigger. And actually, the yeah. big growth area for London is fintech, a bit like New York. Right. And actually, yeah, financial um, technology um, uh, in, investment is a, is a huge growth area now for, for, for both cities. We will certainly take a look at how the growth of fintech impacts the supply and demand issue of real estate in London. All right, I've been easy on you, but now I'm going to ask you the billion-dollar question. How will the 2020 U.S. presidential election impact the U.S. real estate market, in your opinion? Um, well, my my understanding is that I think that you you always or traditionally you'll see a, a, a slight slowdown in market activity in the run up to the election because you get mm-hmm. a degree of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I suppose really the question for investors has got to be, you know, what changes? I mean, if you get if you get a majority, if you get a uh, if you get a Trump victory. Um, <laughs> Uh, or, or, or a Democrat victory. I mean, actually, fundamentally, what changes in terms of um, economic uh, out- outcomes? Um, so I think you, you tend to get a delay um, if if there's uncertainty, and that's that, that's that's always the case. My, my view is, I mean, my guess, to be fair, I haven't sort of read the policy uh, offer in detail, but my my guess would be. That both, you know, uh, that both candidates, the Democrat candidate versus and the Trump, you know, and Trump, you know, will offer, you know, a relatively sort of pro-business kind of, uh, you know, view. There may be there may be differences around. We hope, Liam. We hope. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, there may be differences around, say, you know, treatment, say, you know, medical care or or, uh, or social security or whatever. But I mean, I, I guess you know, for for any politician trying to win. Um, they they have got to offer you know economic growth. I mean, ultimately 100%. that's 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 it. You know, without that, you know, you, you, you well, you're never going to get a second term. It is concerning that there is still a discussion ongoing about implementing a pied-à-terre tax, which ultimately is going to impact foreign investors. That goes back to don't you think that while everybody's slowing down up to the election, isn't that just the most opportunistic time for foreign investors to enter into the U.S. market? When there is uncertainty, there is negotiability. And when there is fear, there is a lot more opportunity, no? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think 
you know, the, the, the problem is always trying to guess, you know, when, when is the right time to buy? And if you're trying to be clever, actually buy at the low point of the market, mm. um, you've got to, um, you've got to pick that, that, that point of maximum pain because, <laughs> and the difficulty, the difficulty with that is, is, is that's the point when everyone is frightened to en- enter the market. But it, I think, you know, if you think back to 2008 and, you know, the, the Lehman's collapse well, at that, that was, point, yeah. everyone, ev- Everyone stepped back from every market, and actually, in hindsight, that the the, the, the point to buy was the following day. I mean, That's that, that exactly was the right. It is the same thing taking place right now. Having a Brazilian buyer come in and look at a twenty million dollar apartment and get thirty percent off is exactly my point. That buyers in today's market should be running to take advantage of the absolute frozen nature of this climate. What is the latest in the U.S.-Chinese trade war? Is there an end in sight? What should investors be weary of, in your opinion? I think it's probably, I mean, yeah, economists have, have been assuming that the, the trade war will resolve itself relatively quickly. I think it's, it, it is unlikely to resolve itself completely uh, in, in, in the short to medium term. I think it, it, the trade war itself probably speaks to a bigger issue. Uh, which is really a technological war or rivalry between between China and the U.S. Um, and I think you know the the rationale behind the initial um, uh, tariffs around you know concerns over China's um, um, com- you know, competition or unfair competition um, you know that was a kind of starting point. Yeah. Um, and that that was um, an interesting you know um, place to start, but actually. There is, you know, there's undoubtedly a significant battle between China and the U.S. to become the tech center or the or, or, or the location where tech investment, you know, is, is you know is, is, is dominates. Mm. And you can already see it that you've got this sort of um, this growth of you know U.S. and China, you know, almost sort of the same to different countries globally. You know, which sphere of influence you sit, sit in, um, and you know, for most countries, you know, they can happily trade with both China and America and the European Union, and that's all fine. But there will be areas, particularly around tech and um, and, and and you know, digital services, where that will become less uh, less uh, of an option. And I think that that then begins to um, uh, become slightly more complex. But in terms of real estate and 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 the impact on our markets, you know, whether it's in New York or in London, I think the what this boils down to is um, whether there'll be more globalization or less globalization of investment flows in the future. And one of the things that I, I, I know you know from the uh, National Association of Realtors um, data is there's quite a sharp contraction in the amount of mainland Chinese investment in the US in the last 12 months. Uh, I these are sort of individuals buying properties for you know for investment or for their children or for university. And some of that really comes down to this issue around actually what's the relationship uh, between China and America. And also, I think, you know, China looking to manage outflows of capital and, and trying to manage uh, capital, fl- uh, capital flight and capital flows um, to make sure it doesn't impact on their, on their, their economy and on, on their currency. So basically what you're saying is that we're having a bit of a power struggle between two very tech-savvy countries, each pushing their own agenda. Hmm. Let's stay tuned on that one. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you something politically incorrect, which is how much do you love American beer? But you're probably not going to answer me anyway. <laughs> oh, I, I love American beer. You do? Yeah. Which one? <laughs> oh, I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> Good say. 
I just want to say thank you so much for... Um, what time is it there, by the way? Uh, it's uh, three in the morning. Oh, no, sorry. It's, uh, it's three in the afternoon. Sorry. Three in the, it's, it's three in the afternoon. <laughs> but it feels like 3 a.m., doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just want to say thank you for being on today's podcast. It has been such a treat. Thank you for tuning in to the world of real estate. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button to stay up to date with my latest episodes. 